Hi, good morning and welcome to another episode of Bharat Vartha Weekly. Me, I have our regular guest Abhishek Paul and I'm your host here, Kanodra, since our regular host uh, Roshan is away and uh, so is the other guest, Prasanna. Hey Abhishek, how are you? And you know, doing good, how are you? Uh, not too bad. Uh, got COVID, uh, missed it for like two years, avoided it, but uh, hopefully on the recovery path. So anyways, uh, so moving on. Uh, so this week we've had quite a lot of uh, uh, news events. Uh, you had Boris Johnson uh, visiting India. PM Modi had a speech on Red Fort. You had the bulldozer controversy in Delhi and Prashant Kishore's strategy for Congress. Going to the first topic. Uh, so PM Boris Johnson uh, is currently visiting India. His visit took place uh, while he under fire from other MPs for the party gate scandal. His uh, two-day visit uh, will focus on economic ties and the war in Ukraine. The PM also is uh, hopes to strike a new economic deal between Britain and India, uh, which he said should be done by Diwali in areas such as software engineering, healthcare, and also wants to provide alternative options for defense procurement and energy to diversify India's uh, dependence from Russia. So, Abhishek, uh, what do you make of this visit? Uh, what do you think uh, will be achieved? Yeah, so I think obviously uh, it was an important visit. I think if you look at the trend and trajectory of Indo-UK uh, relations in the recent past, I think the relation has been fairly good and stable with the Conservative Party in power in the UK. Uh, and I, I mean... I think uh, the domestic politics also sort of what is there in the UK sort of makes the Tories, uh, you know, a bit more pro-India while Labour with their vote bank has probably got more sympathy with the Pakistan side of things, right? The Tory party also has prominent members of the Indian community in top positions, like we were discussing uh, Rishi Sunak the other day. Right. So, I mean, in general, I guess both parties and the government are for a positive relationship. Now, the obviously, as you said, the big talking point was uh, the trade deal, free trade agreement that is being worked upon right now. I think in the press conference, PM Modi said he would like that it gets done by the end of the year. Uh, Boris Johnson actually gave an even more aggressive deadline that he said he would like it by Diwali. So yeah, I think uh, the fact that uh, the Australia and UAE FTAs have happened probably gives a good sort of blueprint in terms of how to proceed and, you know, get it done, right? So that's something to watch out for. I think there is cooperation happening in obviously other areas as well. Defense is a good example of where India and UK are working now and there is room for a lot more to be done, uh, especially given, you know, the whole geopolitical uh, climate. And as we were discussing a little before, like the UK is also now actively taking interest in the Indo-Pacific with the AUKUS agreement that they have done with Australia while India is part of the Quad. Yeah, I think on the surface, things look quite okay in the India-UK relationship for now. Uh, but uh, whether the trade deal FTA gets done will probably give a more better hint in terms of whether both parties are able to, you know, get over some of the more sticking points that will be there in the finer print. Absolutely, absolutely. I think one is 
UK has also been uh, wanting to find trade partners after it getting out of the EU, and uh, uh, India also is now looking to open up its economy more and uh, try and build up on like certain exports. So good news is, uh, yeah, Scotch whisky might get cheaper in India, uh, but uh, also uh, this opens up for like a lot of Indian manufacturing setup, and now India is assembling. a lot of like mobile phones and like mobile phone chargers india is the largest manufacturer of that so i think gives a lot of indian industry access to other markets as well so absolutely it's a win win and uh, as you correct as you pointed out right like the conservative party is uh, closer to india and so it's very critical that this gets done uh, before like the government changes or whatever right so uh, while they're not due for an election this year it's uh, very important to increase deals because once they are done uh, they are set so it's not very easy to reverse them uh, even if like another party comes into power that is a really development moving on so pm modi gave a speech at the red fort on the occasion of the 400th birth anniversary of guru tegh bahadur on thursday at pm uh, celebrated in uh, this significant sikh holiday at the red fort during his speech he mentioned that uh, the red fort is a witness that even though Aurangzeb severed a lot of heads. He could not shake our faith, and uh, on this occasion, he released a commemorative coin and a postage stamp. Uh, Abhishek, what do you make out of this? Is this just like a bit of Sikh pandering after they are drubbing in uh, uh, the Punjab elections, or is there something more to this? So, if it is pandering, it is not really related to the election, where I don't think BJP was expected to. Too well, probably it's more of a consequence of the whole uh, farm protests, right? The top echelons of the BJP is always mindful that it's important that the perception of Hindu Sikh amity prevails, and uh, there is definitely a discourse which uh, sort of paints uh, the BJP as. Uh, you know, anti-minority and anti-Sikh as well. So that's a perception they have to constant, constantly keep trying to fight, right? I think some of it comes from that angle. Uh, but yeah, I think interesting choice of doing the speech, uh, giving it such a big sort of stage, right? At Red Fort, I don't think it has been done before. But yeah, uh, interesting sort of. Uh, obviously i mean people will uh, look at the political uh, uh, meaning uh, behind it and I, and it's not like there is a big upside for the bjp to come because elections are over right it's more like it's an effort by them to sort of sort of or build a bit more amity between uh, the two communities after the whole farmer protest thing right so yeah that's what i think about this oh, true 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 also uh, what is uh, uh, modi is using all these opportunities to kind of uh, keep a consistent messaging so probably using all these celebrations etc to further his own uh, uh, message uh, moving on bjp is under fire for bulldozing encroachments in delhi's jahangirpuri area it is uh, after there were a couple of stone pelting incidents and uh, riots on religious lines in that area uh, bjp chief adesh gupta had, uh, had written a letter to the co- uh, mcd co- uh, corporation mayor to identify and de- demolish illegal encroachments uh, made by those who were arrested for the violence but uh, aap alleged that uh, the order had been issued to harass a particular community in name of encroachments it, as you can see uh, it's been bad timing where uh, british pm boris johnson was uh, 
photograph of the JCP bulldozer uh, talking about economic ties between India and the UK and uh, we could import more of such construction equipment. So what do you make of this whole incident here? Yeah, I think bulldozing of illegal encroachments has been happening throughout like my lifetime as I can remember. I mean, I recall very vividly there used to be uh, a pizza hut or a domino very near to where I used to stay earlier. And suddenly, you know, I returned one day from office and I saw that they had demolished the entire place because like uh, a few inches or few a couple of feet ex- was sort of encroaching on the road, right, of that building. So, you know, municipalities all around India uh, demolish illegal encroachments. And the key criticism is often is that not that the demolition is per se wrong, but that the proper process is not followed, right? So I think, you know, common sense will also tell us that the uh, right process is you issue a notice, you get uh, replies, and then it's probably uh, you get the orders after, you know, this give and take has happened, right? And clearly this process has probably not been followed in the case in Delhi or a few other incidents uh, that happened around the country like Madhya Pradesh, etc. Now, why the BJP is doing it? I think there are a few reasons, right? So uh, one is uh, their inability to sort of preempt or stop uh, law and order incidents or riots that happened uh, last week, right? Uh, uh, on uh, on Ram Navmi, etc. Right? So now, obviously, they are, they are under fire for not uh, being able to, uh, you know, control law and order. So now, how do you change the perception? One quick way is you appear strong on the topic by, you know, uh, acting against uh, illegal uh, encroachments. Now, people will obviously question that timing because it looks pretty bad, right? Where you are doing it in a uh, sort of vindictive way. Uh, the other thing is, I think how it's sort of used in Uttar Pradesh is like, it is sort of like used as a warning to others that you know, if you do this, you will uh, face this consequence. So yeah, it's, I mean, it's quite troublesome in the sense uh, uh, if you also read, I think the matter went up to Supreme Court pretty quickly and they asked for a uh, status quo, but, you know, people went back and forth whether we have heard what the Supreme Court has said or not. And they used that excuse for two, three hours. Now, the, it's troublesome in a lot of ways because one, uh, you don't want to be sort of going against what the Supreme Court is doing. But at the same time, another troubling issue is why is it sort of going to Supreme Court in the first place, right? So, I mean, there are a lot of issues, right? Like, I think uh, India's justice system not delivering is also a reason why these kinds of actions are taken by politicians and even supported by the public in some way, right? Because they feel that an illegal encroachment case will probably go on for 15 years in various courts and no real resolution will happen. So uh, politicians also feel emboldened that, you know, they can do this. 
Uh, so yeah, it's like uh, all sorts of uh, India's uh, public policy issues coming to a head in these kind of uh, issues, incidents, right? Side is comes out better over this, but it also highlights all our weaknesses. Like yes, like state capacity, judicial capacity, due process, all the issues are sort of. Yeah. Since you're too late, you kind of do everything haphazardly, and then maybe there are a lot of those uh, unfortunately people living in those encroachments who are not uh, party to the stone pelting or any other crimes committed, any riots committed, and they are collateral damage. Yeah. So I mean, the whole uh, thing about you know, so basically this is like a collective punishment to a locality yeah. because. Out of there, certain elements have done, uh, you know, all this uh, writing and stone pelting, etc. So, I mean, it's a collective punishment uh, happens because, you know, in, uh, we are not able to give, uh, you know, quick justice in our system right now, right? So, there is no faith in the judicial system, although people will say platitudes, uh, but the fact is, I guess, a lot of people have lost or don't have faith in at least quick justice in these kind of cases. Absolutely. Absolutely. So moving on to something positive. So India's richest man, Gautam Adani, made some positive remarks in a statement at the India Economic Conclave. Uh, the industry has stated that no one will be able to, uh, no one will go to bed hungry uh, if India becomes a 30 trillion economy by the year 2050. So 28 years from now, and he stated that uplifting the lives of 1.4 billion might feel, uh, so while it feels like a sprint in the short run, it's actually like a marathon. And he predicted India will add, uh, so a little over 25 trillion to our economy and with uh, eradication of all forms of poverty. So what do you think about this thing? Uh, is he just talking his own book, which he wants to happen? Or is it realistic? I thought, in some ways, it was a fairly moderate kind of uh, forecast. I think there are others who will probably say, you know, will probably be even more. But at the end of the day, uh, I think someone like Gautam Adani, who has been incredibly successful in the last uh, decade, let's say, and especially in the last few years, he has all the reasons to be uh, bullish. Uh, and, I mean, it wouldn't make sense for Gautam Adani to give circumspect statements given how successful he is. So, yeah, I think it's only natural that, uh, you know, he he was uh, being bullish about India and the India story. So, yeah, I think a uh, lot will depend on probably uh, how the next five, ten years go because it's all path dependent, right? The better you do now, the more better your trajectory will be as you get closer to 2040, 2050, right? So the nothing is more important than now, I would say. No, agreed, agreed. And if you just look at, like, I just did a, a ballpark check. So if I just do, like, uh, 28 years and uh, to grow 10x, it is not uh, completely outrageous. Obviously, India will face different challenges. So I think... Every time you kind of double the size of your GDP, uh, what happens is <clears throat> that 
you face new challenges and new bottlenecks and uh, countries can like form uh, find themselves in a middle income trap where uh, earlier because the whole society gets a little bit richer you lose like cheap labor to do things correct exactly uh, so yeah. there are different at every stage at every stage so right now say we are a 3 trillion economy when we go to 5 6 trillion there are different set of challenges when we reach to 10 there will be a different set of challenges 20 and 30 so obviously i think uh, but what happens is it's like the question is at what stage we sort of the growth rate slows down to the advanced economy kind of growth rates right and the idea is like that it doesn't slow down right till we are somewhat middle real middle income right rather than yeah no absolutely absolutely and so i think uh, this is also what is important in such communication is kind of like it kickstarts like it regenerates the animal spirits right india is seeing a lot of entrepreneurship a lot of like venture capital being deployed uh, this attracts some foreign capital i've like said previously also on the podcast that india is a country with surplus labor and lack of capital and if you can like merge these two together attract foreign capital and uh, kind of work at like removing bottlenecks one by one by one uh, definitely india can actually if you go just consistently at like 7 8% for 28 years that's the whole key uh, with like a stable currency uh, we will reach there right so it's just a matter of time it's a matter of being consistent and like uh, pushing on with the goals and uh, obviously uh, gautam adani with all his uh, uh, business ventures doing very well adani green being one of them and the whole energy transition i think it's a very critical juncture as well right like the world is transitioning away from like fossil fuels uh, maybe uh, people will use either like clean coal or uh, go to nuclear even after this whole russia ukraine shock so it's kind of like resetting uh, new supply chains are emerging so india is poised to take advantage of it as usual execution plays the key but uh, hopefully we do we do that and maybe surpass it probably reach there earlier hopefully so anyways uh, moving on uh, political analyst prashant kishore has approached congress with a 600 slide uh, il- uh, presentation on election strategy uh, there is a buzz of him joining the party also in 2024 elections uh, kishore on monday evening met uh, the party uh, party chief sonia gandhi uh, for a planning session for the upcoming assembly polls this year and uh, lok sabha elections in 24 uh, reportedly congress is considering uh, kishore's proposal for a revival of the grand old party and a game plan for the upcoming elections so uh, abhishek what do you make like prashant kishore has been like kind of a professional uh, uh, election strategist right or a spin doctor as you may call it uh, having assisted parties uh, across the spectrum so what do you make of like his this uh, venture yeah i think uh, there are numerous such uh, folks probably in the indian electoral landscape but he's the one who who is okay with his face being out there i think there are a lot others who prefer to be completely in the background right they don't want the publicity to their name uh, so yeah i i was actually in uh surprised that uh, this thing happened because uh, 
he had obviously reached out and i think worked with the congress in the past but they had some sort of fall off and after that prashant kishore was quite critical of congress uh, in interviews so there is one uh, with shekhar gupta that i had caught a uh, few months back where he was uh, uh, quite critical of the congress approach etc so interesting that uh, he went back Uh, for a discussion with the congress uh i think the good thing for him is that you know congress is at such a um floor level that uh, it it's there's not much downside for them to go and and he he can probably do some work and if they they do well little bit as well he can probably take the credit for that but i think uh, to be fair to him he's a smart man i think i would say that some of the issues that he has previously uh, publicly sort of talked about uh, about the congress uh, does make sense so for example some of the things he's talked about is uh, getting a bit total clarity in the leadership position and how inter party democracy happens and all that right uh, right now it's sort of uh, left to the three people from the gandhi family uh, who have the uh, real leadership positions but after election defeats there isn't any accountability so the next level is sort of sacrificed and new people come in but not much changes on the ground i think he's also talked about uh, congress as a party uh, you know who 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 is identified with the freedom struggle having completely ceded the nationalism space to bjp how do you do that like how do you mess that up right he is also talked about uh, how did you know congress let the bjp co-opt uh, all the congress leaders of the past outside the gandhi family right so like sardar patel is a very good example so congress in their obsession of only highlighting the uh, members of the gandhi family uh, neglected in you know cultivating the legacy of people like patel which allowed uh, bjp etc to come in and you know they they respect him and they benefit out of that association right uh, not and even in, in recent times right like the treatment of uh pv narsimha rao who's by any definition probably the most successful congress prime minister congress has totally given up on honoring him or uh, you know using his work in a positive way right so uh, those are like many of the unforced errors that congress has made of course there are many other issues like they don't really have a coherent message right now uh they lack the energy let's say that is demonstrated by the bjp leadership when it comes to electoral battles so those kind of things are there i think uh given the state of the congress i think they will probably benefit with getting prashant kishore in but the question really remains how much uh you know independence or authority they will give him to make 
the required changes. So that remains a question mark. Also, uh, right now, Congress, uh, if you look at like state elections, uh, so only in Rajasthan and in Chhattisgarh do they have like a chief minister. They're part of coalition governments in a couple of other places. But that too, they've kind of like seeded ground quite a bit. And uh, as you said, like while Prashant Kishore is a smart guy, uh, can he actually, is he given a free hand to implement the tough changes that are needed, right? So apart from just messaging and marketing, even like things on the ground need to change. So, well, it remains to be seen. I personally felt like 600-page PPT is probably combined size of all the presentations I've made in my full career. Rarely so that one is probably a, a joke that sort of became a news, right? <laughs> yes, yes. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and then uh, final topic uh, for today, uh, uh, US Congresswoman Ilan Omar uh, visited by uh, visited Pakistan occupied Jammu and Kashmir uh, that has been condemned by India. In a statement, uh, Ilan Omar's visit was termed as violative of in India's territorial integrity and sovereignty and reflected on narrow-minded politics. The US has notified that actions do not represent the United States in any way and it was like a personal trip. So what do you think about this one? Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, none of it was surprising, right? So uh, Ilan Umar is one of the um, rising stars in the Democratic Party, whether we like it or not, uh, uh, along with, uh, so she's called the member of the squad or something like that, right? Where. Uh, uh, they are supposedly the most progressive wing of the uh, Democratic Party. And uh, she has often, uh, you know, been anti-Israel, anti-India, or brought up issues of Islamophobia in various forums, right? Uh, so, yeah, I think her visit to Pakistan uh, uh, doesn't surprise me. I think the timing was interesting, given there is a there has been a government change in Pakistan. Maybe this was probably planned in advance and they went ahead with the trip. So she ended up meeting both Imran Khan and Shabazz Sharif during this trip. So yeah, I think India's response is also quite understandable. I think India generally condemns the visit of uh, any foreign politicians into POK. Right? Uh, and so the Foreign Ministry spokesperson issued a statement uh, condemning that and the US also sort of gave a clarification that, uh, uh, you know, this is uh, not an official visit by any means. But yeah, I think uh, the way to read it is that uh, Pakistan continues to have some allies in the United States uh, political fray. Uh, now, uh, even though it's probably at its lowest when it comes to US-Pakistan relationship in general in the last 20-30 years, but still, uh, I mean, we always say that Pakistan punches above its weight uh, when it comes to the foreign policy arena. And so that has not really changed, although I guess Imran Khan uh, was not really a very successful prime minister in that uh, arena. So yeah, I think uh, uh, the current Biden administration probably is sort of uh, sanitized or, you know, uh, 
uh, has kept away from some of these elements of the party, but you know, future democratic administrations will probably have more influence from the sections of the party, like the squad and Ilhan Omar. So that's something India will always have to sort of watch out. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, even uh, like, uh, it's like a fine balancing act, right? Because each side, uh, India, while it has a lot more leverage than it had before, it's still quite less. Uh, like China kind of uh, wouldn't allow Nancy Pelosi to visit Taiwan. And they have that much more leverage because the economy is quite big, very well entrenched into the global supply chains. So probably uh, if India's GDP does go five times, probably India can actually uh, exercise more power, more leverage this way. But uh, absolutely, as in, and in all these places, like India does have to uh, like know which forces are for or against India, like uh, utilize the ones which are pro-India to be the uh, ones leading all the other discussions, etc. Right? So, absolutely, it. But it's a good thing that we've actually condemned it and like made an issue out of it uh, earlier. I don't know if it, these things have happened before. Earlier, India was quite reticent on the global stage, right? These things would not be made public. Might have been made in private directly to them, etc. So uh, that's one way of looking at it in a positive sense. But yeah. So I think uh, that's about it. That's a wrap for the week. Uh, so thank you for t- tuning into Bharatvarta Weekly. Uh, I think uh, Neerav, we should also wish Sachin a happy birthday on his yeah, absolutely, absolutely. 49th birthday, right? Yeah, and so, Bharatvarta, uh, viewers can check out a previous episode we have done only on Sachin. So maybe we should tweet that out today. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's... Uh, not just uh, like Sachin's 49th birthday, but uh, also like the 25th anniversary or no, 98, 24th, 24th, yeah. 24th anniversary of the Desert Storm Part 2. So I think there's 22nd April and 24th April. I remember those matches like it was yesterday. So absolutely. I think uh, we have, uh, I was just looking at the comments. So Roshan has been commenting on our live stream. So he had a question. What do you think about the idea of Ramchandra Gua suggesting Ravish Kumar as the Congress PM candidate? <laughs> so, I see, I uh, it's here, it's also about like who holds the real power. So, right. you know, for example, when Manmohan Singh was the Congress candidate, uh, did he really have the power? And the PM's office should be the most powerful. It should not be that the party president controls more power over someone. So that is one thing to be seen. Two is who knows uh, who will be put up as the face or whether they can garner enough votes, etc. Ravish Kumar does have uh, some sort of uh, fan following. And uh, uh, does it translate into like a nationwide uh, voting thing for him? Or if he becomes too popular, does he get cut down in size? Uh, by the Congress party leadership. So, uh, remains yeah, I, I think Rajan uh, earlier as well. Yes, so they are always these talks of them looking for the next Manmohan Singh. Yes. Right, because uh, somehow, uh, so I, I don't know if they have really settled down on the issue of whether Rahul Gandhi is the right face 
to lead them to the next elections or whatever whenever there is a general election i think the last term they definitely did uh project rahul gandhi only but i mean that's a, another debate for congress to settle whether they want a technocrat or another kind of figure to head or the gandhi family to head uh, the party as the puppy and face the journalist and he's become the prime minister so it's not as if it, it can't be possible and then the second thing is also uh, remains to be seen if like uh, congress can field like enough candidates to get like a reasonable majority on its own or like be the leading party in a coalition because for all we know we might see some sort of like a mva government uh, yeah like a, so like a grand coalition of like regional parties all coming together whether it is a third front or it is a congress led uh, non bjp front if you might call it that way uh, which yeah i think like uh, one of the talked about strategies is to just somehow deny bjp an absolute majority and then they can sort of cobble up the rest yeah uh, post election like like maharashtra yeah so grand coalition yeah absolutely so in that case again we may not see like a congress pm we might see someone who's got a little more leverage uh, who has the ability to walk away uh, that person might be uh, the pm if like bjp loses in 2024 anyways it's interesting times and uh, there are a lot of things in open like uh, churchill had said a week is a long time in politics so this is over 2 years old uh away yeah. who knows a lot of things can change by then so yeah uh with this we call it a wrap uh join us next week uh for the next episode of bharat vartha weekly and uh, we'll definitely put up the episode on sachin dendulkar uh as part of our social media feeds do check that out as well bye bye